there is a loud cry from many in the church today for we're cutting the last song I'm sorry I got in a hurry uh, we, the food's going to get cold <laughs> while they're sitting down um, we ever heard of one track mind um the one thing that I would say about the song, which I love, it's my grandfather-in-law's favorite song. He's passed away now and is in glory with Christ. Um, the one thing I would, a contention I would have with the song is uh, in the chorus. I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. The cross will never be exchanged. The cross is eternal. The crucifixion of Christ will fly over us in a, as a banner in heaven. And if any place celebrates the cross and does anything but exchange it for something else, it's heaven. All of heaven stands at attention when the Father says, Who is worthy to unleash the scroll? And the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world walks forward. The cross is in view in heaven. You will not forget the cross when you reach there. We will never move beyond it. It will never be exchanged for anything else. I know what I think he means is the writer means there is a crown for us. And that the struggles we have in the cross here are gone. And we won't struggle any longer in those struggles. But we've got to be careful and very exact when we talk in this way. Because all through the song you notice the cross is an emblem of Christ. We don't cherish a piece of wood. What do we cherish? Christ, who died on the wood. And so we have to be careful. When you use phrases like this, sometimes they can confuse us. We'll never move beyond Christ. We'll never move beyond grace. We'll never move beyond the offer of God of salvation through the cross. Thank God we don't ever move beyond it. The gospel message is clear. It is justification by faith. There's a loud cry by many in church today, and I did have a PowerPoint and our technology has failed us, so you'll just have to go back to uh, pre-last week uh, and no, no technology. I'm sorry. But their cry in the church is that there needs to be more life application preaching. People are tired of hearing about the deep things of biblical doctrine, people tell us. The experts seem to say through all of their polls. It seems that the church is craving surface-level truth that will simply help them live the day after day in an endless cycle of legalism, spiritual to-dos and spiritual to-don'ts. <laughs> and that this is, a, is the whole in total of salvation. This life after, day after day after day of struggling with these to-dos and to-don'ts. And in general, the shallow teaching will help them barely hold on to what life, little faith they have in the truth. I want you to know that this is not what our Lord wants for you or for His church. I also want you to know that this approach of staying on in surface level truth is not new. It's the same approach that the Catholic church took some 1,500 years ago, as the church drifted away from the deep truths of Scripture and focused on the words and the teachings of men and the day-to-day -day living of a common man in the kingdom of Rome. 
The result of that drift was corruption from the top down. Spiritual death of millions. That's why we call it the dark ages. And an almost total eclipse of the true gospel. But thank God, God is a merciful God. Because after that drift, five, about 500 years ago now, a great movement was begun by a little Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, a little unknown man who was transformed by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. October 15, 17, God used this man pinning up his 95 thesis on the church door to... I'm at the very beginning, Steve. Yeah, we're about to be right there, so you can... That'll be good. He used the pinning of the 95 Thesis to the church door some almost 500 years ago now to begin what is known as the Reformation and the changing, total transformation of the visible body of Jesus Christ. I want to give a simple overview of history of the Reformation and eclipse of the Reformation, which is now experiencing today. You are experiencing it. I'm experiencing it. All this is to prepare us for a message, series of messages on every second Sunday on the foundational doctrine of justification by faith. Every time we take the Lord's Supper for some time, we will study justification by faith alone. It's the conviction of my heart that a proper understanding of this one doctrine can bring freedom and life to each person who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater practical teaching in all the world than justification by faith alone. With that in mind, I want us to launch off into this historical outline. And you have it there on the screen. In 1505, Martin Luther became an Augustinian monk by the sovereignty of God and a lightning bolt which struck near him and he fell off his horse on his face and cried out to the saint, patron saint of minors, and save me and I'll become a monk. And he was saved. From the lightning storm, and he was a man of his word, he became a monk. 1512, he received his doctorate of theology. And then in 1513 through 1516, in his pulpit and his teaching lectern, he taught through Psalms, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, and Titus. And you think, man, he was moving. That's three years. Why was he moving this fast? This was a daily teaching. It took him, still took him three years teaching daily for hours at a time to get through these books. It was his life work. It is what he had, he had come to see as his goal in life was to teach God's Word. In 1516, somewhere around the end of 1516, the beginning of 1517, he began to wrestle with the doctrine we're dealing with, the justification of a saint. Justification by faith alone. And Luther wrote that in his text uh, for, for us in plain German. He, As he translated the Word of God, uh, said that, in chapter 3 of Romans, faith alone justifies a sinner. Faith alone. And so it's this revolutionary concept which he picked up studying the book of Romans that transformed his life. He, in fact, became a Christian at this point in his ministry. This is when he says he became a Christian. 1517, he changed, he challenges all the scholars in his area to a debate on the necessity of the practice of indulgence. Uh, indulgence was the payment for sins. You know, you paid your way out of purgatory. You paid your relatives out of purgatory. You paid your way personally, monetarily, through works and service and traveling far distances and grueling uh, torture tests of, uh, of things that they had to do to earn 
forgiveness. And as a matter of fact, um, while he was teaching in the very town he taught in, there were relics. Um, there were the big largest collection of relics was there with him as he taught in Wittenberg. 18,000 relics which would earn a pilgrim to Wittenberg from anywhere in the world who put their faith in the church and in Jesus Christ came to see these 18,000 relics received 1,912 years of out of purgatory. But you had to pay to get there and you had to pay to see the relics. And so you see the corruption I was speaking of earlier. The forgetting of the gospel led to great corruption and taking advantage of the common man. And so Luther, seeing this ghastly practice, challenges the scholars of his day. Now, it's important you understand at this point because this is misunderstood in our day. It was custom to put your grievances on the church door. That was custom. He wasn't doing anything any different than any other scholar would have done. He wrote his offenses and his challenge in Latin so that common people could not read it. Only scholars could read it. He was not trying to start a revolution. He was trying to reform the church of Rome. He was trying to make it what we know it as uh, the real church. He was trying to bring it back to its moorings in the New Testament. He was not trying to start a wildfire. But it was started because God had sovereignly put the printing press into existence. All of his uh, charges against the Roman church were printed in German in less than two weeks and spread all over the Germanic kingdom. Luther gave caution to this. He said, the fire is spreading. That is not my desire. I don't, and he was pushing back from the table. I don't want this. I don't want to bring down the church. I want to help the church. 1518, he's called to this guy, Kedgerton, at Augsburg, and he's asked to recant. Recant. Turn your back on your teachings and follow the church. And he said, I could not bring myself to say those six letters in Latin, revoco, or I recant. He couldn't say it in good conscience. And so in 1519, he was called before Johann Eck, one of the leading scholars of his day, at Leipzig in July. And there Eck declares that he is a Bohemian in the line of John Huss and begins to pave the way for the church to call Luther a heretic and turn their back on him. In 1520, he's condemned as a heretic. In 21, he's excommunicated by this same pope. But yet in 1521, the church... By the, uh, by the uh, pulling of the power of Frederick in Germany, brings Luther to the Diet of Worms in April, a trial before the magistrates of the church. And it is at this trial that he makes his most public declaration of the doctrine we will study over the next weeks. Since your majesty and your lordships ask for a plain answer, I will give you one without either horns or teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture, Scripture alone, or by right reason, for I trust neither popes or in councils, since they have often erred and contradicted themselves. Unless I am thus convinced by Scripture alone, one of his founding principles, I am bound by the text of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I neither can nor will recant anything, since it is neither right nor safe to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. And with these words, he left the room under guard of Prince Frederick and his soldiers, arms lifted in victory, saying, I am through. I am through. Now, nobody knows exactly what he was saying. 
uh, that in reference to. He could have been saying, I'm through. In other words, I'm going to die. That's very likely since the punishment for a heretic and anybody who blasphemed the Holy Roman Church and its pontiff would have been put to death in his day. That could have been, or it could have been, I'm through with the church. I'm through with this peaceful reformation. We don't know. But it's from this point forward that he's taken off into captivity and he writes and translates the scripture for us in German and begins to move the, the Protestant church, the protesters, in a reformation. Luther did not desire revolution. He desired reformation. I want to uh, say that what Luther's real contention with the church was, what it was, was over two things. It was not over indulgences, really. It was not over any of their worship of saints and worship of Mary and all of their system. He had two causes. One was the formal cause, his belief in Scripture alone. In other words, this is the Word of God and we will follow it and no man will stand above it or beside it. It alone stands over us to guide our conscience and our life. And the material cause of his movement was faith alone. In other words, he said, faith alone has moved me to salvation. Not works, not the blessing of the church, not the communion of the saints. God has saved me by faith alone. Nothing else is necessary. That seems far-fetched and way off to us. But the reality is that after the dawn of the Reformation, the church was, the Protestant church was in great unity over these issues, but quickly began to fragment over secondary issues. And we are where we are today, now. In relatively recent history, we've seen these things happen, is why I am preaching a sermon series on the Reformation principle of faith alone. In the 19th century, the unity of evangelical Protestantism, evangelical meaning the gospel, Protestantism meaning those who protested the Catholic Church, comes under attack by what is called Protestant liberalism or the social gospel. And in the early 20th century, the evangelical movement split. The Protestant movement split into mainline denominations and evangelical denominations. And that split is that the mainline denominations reject faith alone as the guiding principle and move to a social gospel. What the call of the church is is not to preach the gospel necessarily. That's secondary. What is primary is the salvation of society through good deeds. They begin to take a step back to the Roman church, back to their uh, ancestors in the Roman church. And the evangelical Protestant denominations began to use terms like born-again Christian. Now, some of you are old enough to remember this. Uh, I'm too young. But uh, you were right in the middle of this, so I'm not trying to tell you your own history, except to say born-again Christian is a term that would have never been used before this time because what is a Christian unless he is born again? So repeating of the same thing. When the President of the United States has to define himself as a born-again Christian, we have a problem. In contrast to his own father, President Bush Sr., who or the elder, who was a mainline Protestant. So we have this concrete shift. In 1960, in the 1960s, two things happened. First, evangelical churches began to debate. This born-again group began to debate the meaning of Scripture alone. What does this mean? What is it to say Scripture alone? And the charismatic movement also began to grow. And so these two things bring yet another split. And that split is, uh, is solidified in the 
80s. The split is over the infallibility of the Scripture. Okay? In other words, one group of evangelicals says the Bible is infallible. And the other group says, no, what Scripture alone means is it is inerrant. That means in its original giving from God, it could not have had error. It could not be mixed with error because it is the very breathed Word of God. That's one side. And the other side of the debate says, well, we have a manuscript which was passed down and translated, and it's infallible in the sense that it had to have major problems, but there's all kinds of little problems that we have to acknowledge, and therefore inerrancy is impossible, and we shouldn't even discuss it. And so from that rift, we have a discussion among these evangelicals about salvation. Finally, finally, the very last strand of unity is brought down. Lordship salvation begins to be debated. Many of you in here are very fervent about that, I'm sure. And a second movement happens, the ecumenical movement, which was spearheaded by evangelical pastors and Roman, and Roman Catholic priests and people to bring Rome and Protestants together. So after 500 years of Reformation, which at the end they were able to say, after darkness, light. I say now, we can say, after light, darkness. The church has entered into a dark age again. And the only cure for that, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, is to proudly and loudly and as often as possible proclaim the truths of the Father's of the Scripture and of the Fathers, and that is that justification occurs by faith alone. And I, I wanted to give you this history to set us up for Romans 1, 16 through 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in the it... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What are we being saved from? This is debated. This is discussed. What, are, what is it that God is saving us from? The first question for any of us as we look at salvation has to be this question. If I'm going to get saved, why do I need to be saved? Why do I need to be saved? And we so it's so common and it so seems so simple we often overlook it we don't explain it to people very well the answer of the bible and indeed the book of romans is clear we are being saved from the wrath of god this is very unpopular in our day to speak of god as wrathful is almost blasphemous in a culture that wants to hear of nothing but the love of god even some who are very respected would say All we need to worry about is that God loves us, not this wrath. I say then, why talk about salvation? If all God is, is love, and if all that means is a gushy love that never would judge anybody, then what are we saying people need to be saved for? There has to be something they're saved from. Romans 1.18 gives the answer, for the wrath of God is revealed. You see, the wrath of God. Against what? Men of unrighteousness who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2.8 gives us a clear answer about what we're being saved from. But for 
those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The wrath of God is what we're being saved from. Don't take it lightly. Don't miss it. It's very foundational to you believing in Jesus Christ. It's unpopular, I said, because many of us, many would tell people like me not to ever speak of that in public because it scares people and might scare them into salvation. I hope that it does. The Bible says it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to stand before an angry, wrathful God. The picture is not pretty for those who resist God. So we must speak of His wrath because that is what we're being saved from. What are we being saved by then? This is the second most foundational question of salvation. And the book of Romans gives us a very clear answer. We are being saved by the gospel, the good news. God has devised a plan to save ungodly and unrighteous sinners like me from the wrath, from His own wrath, by His own righteousness. That's good news. That is the gospel. Do you see it? I'm unrighteous. I'm a sinner. That cannot be disputed. Ask anyone, and they will come to my downfall. As a witness that I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. I'm, I deserve punishment, and yet God has devised a plan to let us not suffer His wrath, but be given His righteousness. The gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God for salvation. No other technique is needed to build the church of God except the power of the gospel. That's what builds the church. The gospel builds the church. Romans 5, 9 says much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, through Jesus, through His blood. We are saved. So we're saved from the wrath of God. We're being saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can the gospel save us? The answer is in verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That puzzles me. Does does it puzzle you? That's not what I expected Paul to write. Doesn't it seem it would make more sense, especially in our day, for him to write, for in it, the love of God is revealed. That seems simple. That seems like that would make more sense to us in our way of thinking. The love of God is revealed, not the righteousness of God. It's this phrase that troubled Luther so much. He understood the righteousness of God. He understood Psalm 130, which says, If you count iniquity, I shall fall. I will fall. No man can stand. He understood the righteousness of God and the fact that he was unrighteous. He understood Psalm 51 that is so clear. I'm, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I was born in sin. There's, I, I, I've got it all over me. It is me. God, we, we think, is ungodly at sin. I mean, un. Uh, wrathful at sin and ungodliness. And when we say that, we say it as if that's something separate from humanity. To say God is wrathful at sin and ungodliness is to say He is wrathful at humanity. God is angry with humanity. They have offended Him. 
infinitely offended, an infinitely holy God. And Luther understood that, and that's why he struggled with this phrase, righteousness of God. If it had said the love of God, he would have said, oh, well, that makes it plain. So what does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed to us through the gospel? this, This is what it seems to mean. It shows us that the love of God could never sweep sin under the carpet and pretend that it all is well. God is love. The gospel is love. We're given that text over and over again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the love of God, the gospel. God is love, John says in 1 John. And in Romans 5, it says, what you know, it's talking about the love of God. And what has He displayed it? That Christ died for us, the ungodly. So the love of God is shown through the gospel. But the love of God does not cancel out or sweep under the rug and pretend that all is well with the ungodly. That would be unjust. God would not be the just and the justifier. If we came before God and He said, You're a sinner. You're guilty. But I love you. We'll just forget it. Come on into heaven. He would not be just. He would not be God. He would not be who the Scripture paints Him to be. Then also it shows us that Paul wants us to understand how we are saved from the wrath of God. Paul is wanting us to know what is this deep mystery in the faith, that we are saved from the wrath of God. Why is it important to stress this aspect of the righteousness of God? I stress it because it is unbiblical Christian, Christianity to understand that they're standing before God as sinners. The plain the plan of God of redemption, what God did in Christ to save us, how the Holy Spirit works to convert us, and how God goes on working by the gospel to keep us and purify us and fit us for heaven. That's the goal of Christianity. That's the goal of the Scripture, that we understand these things as far as it is humanly possible through the power of God. Paul moves inside the love of God, beginning in verse 17 inside the gospel to show us how the gospel is that kind of power. The kind of power that can move the unrighteous to the righteousness of God. The reality is that if a doctor told you you only had a few days to live, this would be the most important thing for you to ever understand in your life is how you are saved and why you are saved. The gospel is good news because God gives us the righteousness that He requires from us. It's not good news to hear we've got to be righteous. That's called damnation. The good news of the gospel is that He has given what He requires. Righteousness. It is His righteousness. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. How is it revealed, Paul? Because the requirement is righteousness and God gives us righteousness in the gospel. That's how it's revealed to us. That's how we can see it clearly. If God gave us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then we would be saved from the wrath of God. That's exactly what He has done. That's why it's called good news, because He has given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is how God saves us. In the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, God gives us the righteousness that He demands from us. And in the weeks to come, we're going to dig in and see the difference between that being given to us 
and it being infused into us. Never make this mistake. Never make this mistake. We are, and we do, we are children of God, and we do have the righteousness of God covering us. But we are sinners. We are sinners. Still today, we are sinners. Don't ever confuse that. God transplants Christ's alien, foreign righteousness to us. And so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our righteousness. Thank goodness He doesn't see my righteousness. He sees Christ's righteousness on my behalf. That's way different, and we're going to see how different it is than saying, I am righteous. I am really, authentically righteous. We are not. We're still sinners. Saved by grace. Saved by Christ's righteousness. So I want to close with the words of Martin Luther. When he understood this phrase we've looked at, the righteousness of God, Luther said this. Oh, that, we could ha- that I could have his heart for understanding. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat un- importunately upon Paul at Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, Meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself. Through open gates. Why had a paradise opened? Because good news had come. God gave him what God required. God was not expecting Martin Luther, you or any of us, to be perfect. If he expected that, we would all be damned. He was not expecting us to earn salvation by our righteousness, which is what Luther had been taught all of his life which is why people bought indulgences, which is why people paid homage to the Pope, which is why they did the things they did so devoutly and so earnestly because they thought it was earning them salvation. And now Luther says, all of these years of struggle and I finally come to see through the glory of God and the righteous mercifulness of God, He gave me what He required of me through faith. Father, we come to You. It is through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we come, thanking you for your righteousness. It is your righteousness and it is transferred to us on your account, by your account, for your account. It is not us that is righteous. We are sinners saved by your righteousness. Blessed to be in your favor because you have given us your righteousness. Thank you that you did not require righteousness only, but that you gave us what you required. For without that, we would be lost. We would be damned. We would be hopeless. Thank you that we have hope. And I pray that this church and churches like it all over the nation would stand shoulder to shoulder in defense of your truth, not disparaging others, but loving you 
and displaying your glory and showing your truth to all of those who will hear by your grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. I want to...